Hello, and welcome to episode zero of the official Center for Christian Civics podcast. My name is Rick Barry. I'm the co-founder and the executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and I'll be your host today for this sample of some of the kinds of content that we'll be bringing you on this podcast in the coming weeks and months. Our team has been really excited to put this new project together. We think that it's going to be a great venue for expanding on the teaching and coaching and conversations that are happening in our classes, on our blog, and through our work with churches and ministry leaders around the country. As an example, I had a conversation recently with Brian Smith and Sarah Morgan Smith, who are the civic education correspondents for the body politic. During the Supreme Court confirmation hearings, they wrote a great article for us explaining the major trends in constitutional interpretation. Kind of a big idea, but important for understanding the role of the Supreme Court and what job Justice Gorsuch was actually being nominated for. Right after that article ran, we were able to have a conversation for the podcast that was a little wider ranging and got into issues that were a little bit more foundational than what the article addressed. We're going to jump into that conversation right at the point where we start talking about whether the terms liberal and conservative even mean the same things when they're applied to a judge as they do when they're applied to a politician. Sure. So, I mean, partly this depends on who you ask. There are certainly some um, observers of the court who would say we can tag justices um, based on their political alliances um, and make predictions about the types of decisions that they will make. So somebody who is aligned with um, the Democratic Party or somebody like Gorsuch who is a known um, supporter of the Republican Party, um, you know, you could say based on those party affiliations, we expect that their their policy preferences will be X, and so they'll rule based on their policy preferences. Um, I happen to think that that's a little bit too cynical, and um, there are other scholars who use those terms more in relationship to how the justices approach um, the actual work of interpretation and their relationship to the other branches of government. So a liberal justice in this sense would be someone who wants to read the Constitution more expansively, um, someone who is looking um, for uh, opportunities to uh, reveal hidden rights or do um, sometimes we hear the phrase penumbras of rights. So there's a, a right that's articulated to, um, you know, freedom of search and seizure, which in the famous case was then, uh, you know, a stretch to include a right to privacy, right? The Constitution doesn't contain the word privacy, but now we have this assumption that it does protect a right to privacy. Um, so that would be a, a liberal type of reading, right? That you're looking for implications in the actual text itself. A more conservative reading would, strict, uh, would more strictly stick to the actual words, the actual text, um, and would also uh, probably be more deferential to legislative intent, whereas a more liberal approach um, to the act of judicial review would say, um, you know, no, we get to say this, this rule is or isn't 
uh, appropriate under the Constitution, regardless of what the intent of Congress was. Thanks for um, taking a minute to explain what liberal and conservative mean in this context. Uh, How do those two different traditions of interpretation end up translating to politics? Is it a clean one-to-one where someone with a liberal interpretation of the Constitution will also be likely to make decisions that sympathize with what we would consider to be liberal political um, ideals? I, I think it it is fairly often very, it's a very indirect relationship. I mean, it might well be that an individual justice's tendencies in general are to look for the more expansive readings on certain kinds of, of rights protections. And they might be very strict constructionists on some other set of ones, but but whatever their interpretive predilection, like their 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 specific way of looking at the text, is before they arrive on the court, they also are constrained by a body of settled law decisions before them that whatever direction the court has gone in the past, they have to have, and I think it's generally accepted by, by judges of all kinds, that there has to be very compelling reasons to overturn prior Supreme Court decisions. So the so not only is there there a, a sort of indirect relationship between whatever the political and sort of big interpretive preferences of the judge are, the settled decisions of the court prior to their arrival might sort of force them in directions they wouldn't ordinarily go. And I I think you couldn't explain the huge number of decisions. And I I think uh, when when we did some digging, one of the things we found was that of the cases they have recently compiled numbers on, uh, a little over half of the decisions were unanimous, one one direction or another. Um, So you couldn't really explain those unless justices were, um, you know, not bound by conscience, in essence, to always interpret in one direction, if, if that makes sense. That was Brian Smith and Sarah Morgan Smith. They're our newest team members at the Center for Christian Civics. And you also got a chance to hear us practicing how it works to record interviews and still try to get great quality when we're talking to people over the phone. One of my favorite parts of our work at the Center for Christian Civics is the classes that we teach. Shortly before the 2016 election, pastor and Center for Christian Civics board member Charles Drew gave a talk in Charlottesville, Virginia on turning down the political heat in our church congregations. We're going to share an excerpt of that now, jumping in right as he starts talking about why it's important for non-Christians to see our churches as places where political opponents thrive together in common Christian community. So Jesus not only died to create unity, he prays right now. Right now he's praying. He's praying for his church. Right now. Praying for you. Praying for me. That we may be a people whose love for each other is like the love of the Father for the Son. It's, it has that level of, of quality and depth to it. And he's praying for that because it's missional. 
that, that the world needs to look at a church and say, this, this organization I cannot explain politically. I cannot explain it sociologically. They love each other even though they're Republicans and Democrats, even though they are blacks and whites, even though they are whatever. They, they actually love each other. And they don't love each other ignorant of each other's differences. No, 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 no. They really talk about their differences. And they wrestle with their differences. They argue with their differences. And yet they still come together to the Lord's table. They still come together celebrating the reign of Jesus Christ over them. That transcends their differences, you see. That's what Jesus prays for. So, so here's what's at stake, it seems to me, in this problem of churches finding unity across their differences. If God cannot hold Democrats and Republicans together under the same roof... If God cannot enable us to work through our differences, then he actually is not much of a God. He's not much of a Savior. He certainly is not the Messiah of the world. When the church divides over politics, uh, we prove something to the watching world, and the world is watching us. I promise you the world is watching. The media is watching the church, (laughs) and the media has the church pegged. They know what we're going to do. And it's really sad that they do, because we should be surprising them. <laughs> so if, if, um, if the church, when the church divides over politics, we prove, quote unquote, that Jesus' cross didn't take. We prove, quote unquote, that Jesus cannot pray effectively, because he's praying for the unity of the church, right? And we prove that Jesus' spirit is a slave to social pressure. When the, church, uh, it, when the church divides, it proves that Jesus is not, in fact, the one that the Father has sent to heal the wounds of the world, as Jesus prays for in John 17, 21. So, so it's a really important issue, and it leads to the, to the topic that I really want to talk about. Is so if, if you all agreed with me, and I hope you are, that it's really important to find a way to live together in harmony, even though we may disagree profoundly over politics, um, how do we do it? How do we, how do we reduce the heat? How do we take the heat down? And what I have before you is uh, five different distinctions that I have found to be helpful. And I really am I'm going to jump almost without much detail, uh, without much delay to the final one. But let me just quickly uh, describe the first four. Um, first of all, um, the, the distinction between public engagement narrowly defined and public engagement Broadly defined. Public engagement narrowly defined is power politics. It's elections. It's the thing that we're right in the middle of right now. Now, power politics is limited. It is a blunt instrument. It's very imprecise. It is coercive. And for those three reasons, it is frustrating and sometimes infuriating. (laughs) And if that's the only way that we think in the church that we can engage with public life, we are bound to be upset with each other and with the culture. But you see, we need to broaden our definition beyond power politics to public influence. Public influence is different from power politics. It's still public. But it's not the same thing as power politics. It's open to all, and for that reason, it's less frustrating and it's irritating. Anybody can pray. Anybody can pray. A person in jail can pray. A totally disenfranchised, a 12-year-old can pray. 
we can, we can, we can pray for God's will to be done and so on. And that's far more powerful than you might think. And there are all sorts of, we can write screenplays. We can tell stories. We can do all sorts of things. We can, we can try to make public righteousness attractive by the quality of our own lives, by the way in which we live out a public righteousness that is, um, that is commendable and, and attractive and winsome. Um, you see, once you, once you define it that way, the heat goes down a little bit because you realize, gosh, you know, I can do, there's always something I can do that has a public bearing. Even if I don't see exactly how it's going to work, I can still do something that's valuable uh, to God. And that's, of course, what matters the most. I don't have to just sort of say, since I don't have power, or since power is such a blunt instrument, I just have to just give up and and just say, the whole culture is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to move to Crozet. <laughs> and, and hide, you know, run, run away. I don't, I'm not suggesting that Crozet is where you go to hide. But I just thought of some place outside of Charlottesville. Um, uh, so, so then the second distinction is between um, theocracy and influence. This is a subtle distinction, but I think it's extremely important. That was Pastor Charles Drew, one of the speakers we have teaching classes on behalf of the Center for Christian Civics, and we're really excited to bring you more from him in the future. I recently sat down for a conversation with Dr. Richard Smith. Dr. Smith is the senior pastor of Oakland Mills Church of God in Columbia, Maryland, and an associate professor of sociology at McDaniel College. Dr. Smith and I were able to talk about how his unique dual vocation as both a pastor and a sociologist has equipped him to understand the Bible's call to love our neighbors as ourselves differently than he would have otherwise if he were just a pastor or just a sociologist. The conversation tended to focus a lot on how his insights applied to how Christians can understand race relations in the United States, which is his particular area of study as a sociologist. Let me share part of that conversation with you all now. Um, and one of the things uh, you've mentioned that um, you've taken from your so background in sociology and applied to the way you think about um, your work as a pastor and your work in ministry and our calling as Christians is um, you've talked about breaking loving your neighbor down into three levels. Um, I was wondering if you could lay those, uh, explain that for our audience a little bit more. Sure. Um, when I was talking about, or when I was talking about three levels before, um, these three levels are something that I teach both in my classes as well as in the church. Um, I teach it a little differently, obviously, <laughs> different communities, but um, the three levels. Treat it like you're teaching a church right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the three levels that um, I look at is, is really based out of um, a, co a connection between the scripture and between um, studying race and racism within the U.S. And it starts with it starts with sympathy. It goes to empathy and then it ends with antipathy, or I should say the highest level is antipathy. And as Christians, when it comes to loving our neighbor, especially when it comes to racial issues um, and, and dealing with people, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, um, many Christians fall at the sympathy level. And that's just the first level. Um, at the sympathy level, that's just basically saying, um, I understand what's going on and that's bad. 
but that's it. <laughs> There's nothing else after that. It's just, you know, I understand or I at least have a knowledge of it and I'm, I feel bad about it, but that's about as far as I would go. And the danger with that level is that it will stop us from fully loving our neighbors. It will hinder us from moving forward beyond just acknowledging something. And it can lead to um, kind of this other idea of colorblindness, that I'm colorblind. Um, and the problem with being colorblind is that if we're colorblind, we don't understand the real entrenched problems that are occurring in our society because of race and because of um, the racial history that we have. So what I push for is that let's push beyond sympathy and get to empathy because there is where we actually say, okay, now I feel, um, you know, I'm not just sad about it, but now it's affecting me. It's hurting me. I feel bad about it as if it was happening to me. Um, and that's where we start to have some compassion for others. That's where we start to care about others. That's when we start to really consider, okay, what is it that I can do? Which takes us to that next level, which is that antipathy level. And that antipathy level is saying, I hate racism and I hate what the racial division has done to us so much because I love my brother or I love my sister. And as a result, because I love my brother, I love my sister, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that I can end racial d divide or I can stop racism uh, wherever I see it uh, because I love them, not because of, of, you know, I feel bad, but because I have such godly love, godly compassion for everyone or this group of people that I'm focused on. So looking at that, it's interesting because in the Bible, you kind of see these same different levels when you look at the different um, discussions of that same love your neighbor scripture in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you kind of see um, where these different levels kind of build upon themselves. You have it where they just stop at, okay, love your neighbor, lo uh, love God, and love your neighbor. Then the next one in Mark, um, it talks about, well, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor. And then it says, um, it's better than sacrifice. Um, loving your neighbor and God is better than anything else you can do. But then in Luke, we actually see the parable of what is called the Good Samaritan, where they're actually taking action. They're actually doing something, or Jesus is showing this parable, where someone is actually taking action because they love their neighbor so much. You had mentioned that empathy is still, to some degree, focused on the self. Yeah. Um, how can you foster empathy while working against becoming self-centered? Yeah, I, I think when we focus on not so much um, I feel bad and, you know, if this was happening to me that I would feel horrible and uh, because that's still self-centered. It's good because now we're trying to put ourselves in other uh, other person's shoes. But at the same time, it, it could lead us to a trap where we're still, as you mentioned, self-centered. We're still focused on ourselves instead of really focusing on other people. So, so I would say that really understanding or gaining an understanding of others would be helpful at this point. And what I mean is by gaining an understanding is to learn about other people, to read their stories, to learn their history to gain a better understanding of their backgrounds and even current things that they have to deal with on a regular basis. Okay. Yeah. Um, it seems like one of the risks I see in only aspiring to empathy and not trying to go beyond that is if you don't already know or understand what it's like to endure something that someone says they're enduring, mm -hmm. 
Uh, it could maybe even be hard to start caring about it oh, if yeah. you can't imagine what it's like to go through it. Oh, yes. And I, I believe that's what we see today in our culture, um, where we see different uh, movements going on, different social movements that are taking place. And that's it. That's episode zero. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to this pilot. And I hope that you'll take 15 more minutes to join us in prayer next Tuesday, May 23rd at 1230 p.m. Eastern time. That's when our May prayer call is going to be happening. And it's going to be 15 minutes of guided prayer for uh, the effect the political process is having on our attempts to build genuine Christian community in our local churches. Our next episode, episode one, is going to be on our website, right where you found this one, in about two weeks. And shortly after that, maybe around the time we drop episode two or three, our podcast feed will actually go live and you'll be able to subscribe to this on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Uh, In the meantime, if there are topics you want to learn more about, things you'd like to hear us cover in future episodes, feel free to drop us a line. You can send an email to info at christiancivics.org, and we'd be glad to hear from you. One more time, I want to thank Brian Smith and Sarah Morgan Smith for being with us this week. And on our website, we'll link off to the article by them that we mentioned a little bit earlier, A Christian's Guide to Interpreting the Constitution. I also want to extend a big thanks to Charlie Drew and to Richard Smith for being with us this week, and to Sonic Weapon Fence, the band that provided our theme music, and to all of you for listening. We hope to hear from you soon.